Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills Podcast. If you want more information on things we're doing, parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. And part of that is because the passage, first of all, is somewhat long. And second of all, some of the things that are going to plague us near the end of Mark start to come up right here. And we thought we'd sort of open it up for you and let you start to think it through. So if you have an ESV Bible, what I want you to do right now is I want you to pull it out and I want you to read for me Mark 9.44 and Mark 9.46. So we're just going to pause a second and give you just... Give you a second to do that or hit pause on your podcast player. Yeah, it's a great time to hit pause while you're looking up those two verses. We're just, we're sitting here just being, uh, you know. We need some Jeopardy music. Yeah. That's probably copyright. We probably can't play it. We get shut down. And hopefully you paused there and you read this. So, uh, reader and listener, you're probably looking at the podcast player right now, whether it's your phone or your computer or your Alexa. Shout out to all the Alexa users who use us in the Alexa podcast space. You're probably thinking, hey, uh, Chris and Alex, you guys are dummies. There is no such thing as Mark 944 or Mark 946. And in one sense, you are correct. In another sense, you couldn't be wronger. And so we want to open up the idea. I know that it's more wrong. It's just funnier to say wronger because it's wronger to say wronger. It's just great. you're probably wondering, why are those verses, first of all, not in my Bible? What happened? What's going on? Why is everything burning? And uh, you're going to be even more surprised and more perhaps you know, confused when we decide not to preach the entire last nine or ten verses of the book of Mark. And you might ask yourself, what are with all these little notes that say the earliest manuscripts say this or the earlier textual manuscripts say that? So we are going to, which is a terrible thing to do on a podcast, we are going to jump into two topics, one called textual criticism and the other one just translation in general. And the reason why I say it's terrible in a podcast, sometimes this is really easy for you to see it lined up. It's sometimes more of a visual art. If we showed you texts side by side, that might make sense. So we're going to do our best to venture into this and open up a can of worms for you, but we're not going to answer it today. We're just introducing the topic. It's going to come up many times in the future as we do podcasts together. Yeah, you can get more details in Chris's forthcoming book that he's called "What's Missing" <laughs> that he's working on, and it'll be done in the 20 least years. important verses of the Bible. Yeah, that's what the, that's the subtitle. Yeah. Of the book. So, and and the reason this is important, and Alex is joking. I'm not writing a book on this. Just in that's case. why I said it's forthcoming in 20 years. Yeah, they're all going to come to me and ask for that now, and you set it up. All right. So, Alex, what are we talking? Well, about? Well, I, I think this is important because. I see this come up a lot every time a translation, a new translation or a new version of a translation, and, and the one that I think of specifically is when the NIV updated in 2011 from their 1984. Uh, some people kind of lost their minds over this, and there was a lot of like, oh, we gotta, we gotta go back to the old ones. They weren't printing the 84s anymore, so people were like searching everywhere. Can we find 1984s? Because we have to preserve these. Because this is the best Bible not the 2011, and I don't think this particular verse was a part of that argument. But as translations change, things like this come up, and people really get worked up about it. And here, the comments that I hear sometimes are, well, look, if you go to the King James Version and the New King James Version, 
Both of those versions have verse 44 and 46, but for some reason, the ESV decided to take words out of the Bible. How could you ever take words out of the Bible? Well, this is where we have this whole field of study, would you say? It's Mm -hmm. called a field of study called textual criticism. And And the idea behind this is we want to get as close to the original words that the authors of Scripture wrote as we can. We call those the autographs. Yep. So we're looking for the autographs, but we have exactly zero autographs of any Old Testament or New Testament book. Like we as in the scientific, uh, historical community, biblical community. Yeah. So pause and just don't freak out. We're going to explain in a second why that's not as big a deal as you might be thinking it is. But yes, there are no autographs in existence that we have at the moment. Right. Keep going. Alex. So what we have are Tons and tons and tons of copies. And, of course, before the printing press, if you wanted a copy of something, you paid someone who could write and write well Mm -hmm. to write this down on something more permanent than, like, a napkin that gets thrown away. Like, I occasionally take notes on napkins because paper's everywhere, and if I need to write something down, and now I write things down, I take pictures of it on my phone, and look, there it is is right there. Mm -hmm. I don't have the original napkin anymore, but I have a picture of it. And then Mm -hmm. I text that picture to you, and now you've got a copy. Kind of a similar idea. Obviously, they weren't taking pictures, but copies upon copies upon copies. And people would quote them in their works. Guys like Josephus would quote, you know, biblical things. Mm -hmm. All all these authors from history are quoting. And so we take all of those. We say, hey, we have all these different copies. Let's put those copies together to try to figure out what the original autograph was And we can get super, super close to the point where we're sometimes just missing like small little words. Did this word end this way or not end this way or instances like this? So if you read this in the New King James. Let me jump in one second here because let me add one letter layer of detail to this. that, That was a great introduction to the concept. And if you're thinking, how do we have all these copies then if we don't have the autographs? Let's just think about it this way. I've done this for classes many times and people thought it was helpful. So I'll try to paint this picture for you on a podcast. Imagine Paul writes a letter to, say, Ephesus. We have that book. We call it Ephesians, correct? And so Paul writes the letter to the book of, to the Ephesians, and so the the letter arrives at Ephesus, and Ephesus has this amazing letter from Paul. Ephesus is not going to then give their letter away, even though Paul said, I want the people in Colossae to read this. And then he says to the people in Colossae, I want you to read the letter that I wrote to this other church as well. So what that church would do is hire a scribe or have a scribe within their church that would copy down exactly what Paul said and send it to the other church. And what starts to happen is instead of the churches passing out the original autograph, because again, why would you give up the letter that Paul sent you himself? You make a copy. So you make the copy, you send it out. Well, eventually what happens is the copies after copies after copies get made, and we actually do have pretty early not autographs, but pretty early copies from various different places in different schools. So we might have a fragment of a scroll from, say, Alexandria, Egypt, and we might have a fragment of a scroll from, say, Greece, and we might have a couple of fragments or an entire scroll in Rome or in, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church has a bunch of these, or there might be a few in Ethiopia, or there might be a few in India. And so what starts to happen is we're able to actually track down each of the scrolls in their place and notice when 
things maybe started being a little bit different. So with that said, let's move back to the Mark 9 that you were going to bring up, and this will give one little piece of context that I think will make sense when we hit Mark 9. Yeah. Sorry, I was, I was looking at uh, I'm going to bunny trail off of you before I get back to my main point. Uh, yeah, like what Chris is saying, there there is a whole field of study devoted yep. to this, to the point that, like, these different fragments are all given different names. And if you yes. talk to people who are into textual criticism, they will just mention these different names. So one that, that I think of is, like, uh, for example, P46, that stands for Papyrus Number 46, mm-hmm. is a fragment that has a bunch of random verses on it. But that's from about 200 A.D. Yep. So you think... A lot of these New Testament books were written in the 50s-ish, you know, 50s plus. So this copy is comparatively very close to the original, whereas we have, this is, and this is not unique to biblical literature, like, you look at, like, all of Homer's stuff, Mm -hmm. right? We don't have any autographs of Homer. No. But most of our copies of Homer are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years after Homer wrote. Um so it, it's really cool. There's Maybe we'll get more into some of these different fragments and pieces and codices. Uh, but right now, let's just jump right into uh, Mark chapter 9. So Mark chapter 9, if you read verse 43, it says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Verse 44, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 35, if your foot causes you to sin, it goes on and on. Uh, fire's not quenched. Verse 46, where the worm does not die and the fire's not quenched. Notice also verse 48, their worm does not die and the fire's not quenched. So we have this phrase three times in a row. Mm-hmm. If you if you look at this particular passage and look at the textual criticism around this passage, uh, I, I pulled my old textual, you know, got my apparatus at the bottom here. Yep. Which we were trained to do this in seminary. This is part of what they teach us pretty early on. They had us a Greek New Testament and say, get ready to play around with the apparatus here. Yep. So, and basically what this is, is it tells you which texts these different words and phrases are found in. So, for example, if I look at verse 44, it gives me that, uh, that wording that we see in verse 44. And it says that that verse 44 was found in a codex called the Alexandrian Codex. Yes. Which is an early codex for sure. And then and there's... from Greece. Yep. And or, then, or sorry, Egypt, uh, Egypt probably. Yeah. Alexandria. Yep. yep. And then there's a couple others. The majority text, it's in the majority text, which that is primarily a text that the King James Bible has used and given that priority. And so I see, okay, so there's some text where this phrase was found. However... The text, the the codices, the big one is, uh, this is Vaticanus, right? The Aleph mm-hmm. is Vaticanus or is it Sinaiticus? Uh, it's Sinaiticus. Yeah, I was going to say Sinaiticus, uh, but I wanted to be sure. Yep, Sinaiticus. That is is probably the best and earliest codex. A codex is just a large book. It's bigger than, you know, some of these smaller fragments. Yep. Uh, Sinaiticus is really good, and then B, that's Vaticanus, so that's uh, from Rome, mm-hmm. right? Those two codices are very early, very reliable, and so what we see is, hmm, two codices that are early and reliable don't have these words, but then a later codex in a certain region uh, has these words added, I, you know, and it's repeated three times. You know what I, I bet happened here? I bet one of the uh, scribes repeated that phrase three times 
for whatever reason, maybe they thought they were making a point. Sure. Or maybe they just accidentally wrote it three times, but then that sure. copy got copied and copied and copied. And now we have what we call different readings of the text. Uh, in this instance, you know, there there's by no means is the meaning of the story changed. Are we like, oh man, it's in there three times. Are all of our theologies falling apart? No, not at all. Uh, but we're just looking at what is what is probably the most realistic autograph. One of the one of the uh, um, principles of text criticism is that usually the shorter, simpler reading is preferred because sometimes scribes, when they'd get to tricky things like this, they'd say, you know what, uh, I need to help explain this a little bit. I'm going to add this in three times, or I'm going to repeat this, or I accidentally wrote it three times in a row. That's, yeah. that's what we see in instances like this. Yeah, and in this particular instance, that's really helpful. I think <clears throat> if you look at 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, and then 48, you have the fire is not quenched one, two, three, four, five times. If you read it in the ESV, you do not see it that many times. And so the other possibility, yes, it's possible that the, the scribe wanted to add emphasis to it and sort of made a holy, holy, holy sort of decision, right, where they put it in multiple times. Mm-hmm. It's also possible, and we have, to, we have to keep this as a possibility, that the scribe fell asleep and accidentally picked up where unquenchable fire was and just wrote another thing and then fell asleep again. Or we, the verses were not put on here until about 1000 AD, so it's very, very late. It's also possible that the person noticed that there are three ellipses here or three different stanzas of a poem, so to speak, and wanted to make sure, well, that that poem is missing this phrase. And so they might have thought a mistake was made in an earlier script, and they wanted to add it in to make sure that this got repeated three times. Because it it does sort of read interesting. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That unquenchable fire thing follows this up three times then, and it becomes this sort of poem with three stanzas or three ellipses. And we read it today and we go, well, this doesn't make any sense because there's seven verses and there's, or there's six verses. There's no way this... Okay, no, if you stop and just think for a second, yeah, it totally would work that they're, they're sort of building these things in without the verses going, no, this is how it was really supposed to be read originally. Someone must have missed there. So they might have thought someone else made a mistake and they wanted to make sure that they fixed the mistake that someone else made. There's a dozen different ways you can go with this, but what ends up happening at the end of the day is you have one school that, that has this and another school that has this and then another school that adds this thing in. And what textual criticism does is goes back and looks at all of these side by side by side by side by side and goes, whoa, all of the earliest ones do not have these repeats. So someone at some point decided to make sure that they made this this decision, whether they thought they were fixing someone else's mistake or whether they added in, or whether they just made a mistake and fell asleep and started adding it all in. That's what happened. So we're going to go back to the earliest, easiest reading, which is leaving 44 and 46 out. But by the time 44 and 46 were left in, and this is where I was going with the verse numbers, that we we put in 1000 AD, the majority of the the scripts that were being used by the people doing translation or the people who were just copying these, these autographs down and doing their thing, but we get time we get to a thousand AD, all they have are the ones with the quote unquote mistake, so to speak. Right. So then that gets moved into perpetuated, you know, perpetuity. They forty four and forty six get sort of stuck into the canon forever. And so now, in order for ESV or NIV or some of these others to remove it, 
you go from 44, sorry, verse 43 to 45 to 47, then 48, and 44 and 46 disappear because it's a repeat that's not in the earliest things. And then people freak out and go, you took it out of the Bible. Right. It was never in there at all. Yeah, and I think that's two really good points you're making there. Number one, we are aiming for the earliest, most reliable understanding I hear this criticism a lot. The Bible has changed. I heard one time I heard someone talking about the Bible. And he's like, well, you know, the Bible was written in 1611. King James wrote the Bible. <laughs> and since, and in the last 410 years, uh, the Bible has changed a ton. And it's like, no, the, the Bible has not changed. First of all, King James did not write the Bible. <laughs> the, the 1611 version of the King James Bible is a translation. That wasn't even the first English translation. I know. I know. I, no, I know you know that, but I'm just saying it's so funny to me because it's, there were other English translations before it. Right. Keep going. But, but this was a critique of, of Christianity. And the, the Bible hasn't changed. We are aiming for the best understanding of the autographs. But more and more we get better and better information. And none of this, even since, since 1611, has changed any of our theology. Correct. We're just aiming at finding the earliest autograph, and sometimes that changes, and sometimes translation changes, which we'll dig into later. But I, I like your second point here, is that it just pops up more uh, explicitly in these ver- these verses because we lost entire verses Yes, from what we thought we had. Uh, you know, y- people may not realize that things like this have happened all throughout scripture, mm-hmm. even, you know, like you're saying, the, the scribe falling asleep at worst, at best, just getting up and going to the bathroom and coming back and sure. realizing we have, we have many manuscripts that have like, you know, you ever, you ever read the same line twice in a row? Like you yep. read a line, then you go to the next line, you realize, oh, you just read the same line. Well, sometimes copyists did that. Like you would literally mm-hmm. see the same line copied twice in a row. Okay. Well, obviously the copy, the copy is just, or repeated words or repeated phrases, um, there's all kinds of instances like that, but here, because the because the verses were, are not original to the text, right? They're added a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. or a thousand years later, which is also a thousand years ago. There we go. Yeah. Uh, just when we happen to take them out, right? Then we're taking out whole verses, and then you don't want to ch- because you don't want to ch- like move the verse numbers back up because then when someone says, "Hey, what's Mark nine forty nine? Well, is it? You know, for everyone will be seasoned with fire or, oh, right. now we had to move all the verses up and right. now 49 is a different verse. Like, we don't want to change that. So we we just take the verses out. They yep. don't, they're not in there. Some Sometimes we put them in footnotes uh, just for reference. But, yeah, I think it's better not to put these in there because the best manuscripts don't have them in there. Yep. And I think just uh, that that's so great. I think when we think about it, we also think, how could they possibly have messed this up? Because in English, it's so clear. This will get us to the translation discussion in yeah. a second. But folks, they're copying Hebrew, they're copying Greek. Uh, it, this came out pretty recently, within the last 30 years. Nebuchadnezzar, that name, actually the second N in the word Nebuchadnezzar. So Nezer is actually Retzar, or Rezer, because of it's, it's, an, it's a row, not a new. Not a new, uh, noon. Um, so I'm, I'm mixing my Greek and my Hebrew up here in my head. But, How could you? But yeah, but if you look at the Hebrew letters, the N and the R, to make it as easy for you to understand as an English listener, the N and the R are the exact same letter. It's just a little bit longer to be an N. That's all it is. They, they're so close to each other that if you looked at them side by side, it'd be really easy to make that mistake. It's not a big deal. It doesn't change the scripture. It doesn't change what's going on. 
So coming back to the, the, the textual criticism aspect of this. So just to be really clear here so that we have kind of it wrapped up in one little sp- spot, and then we'll move on to the, the translation a- aspect or the issue of this. So just, just to be clear, we have autographs. None of those exist right now. It's possible that we are going to find a church, say, in the, the ruins of Ephesus at some point that has an actual autograph down in a crypt somewhere that's been kept safe. The likelihood of that at this point is very, very small because these churches would have copied and copied and copied this thing. It's very possible that it just got so old and brittle that it fell apart and everyone was thought, or oh, we already have the copies made. There's no reason to hang on to this. We're good. So now that all those copies exist, what we start to see with the copies is there's a point where uh, deviations get made. They're minor. They do not change the text. They do not change the overall thrust of the gospel message or where God is going or what his redemptive plan for humanity is. It's usually a very minor thing. So when you hear someone say, well, the Bible got changed, it didn't really get changed. So, like we're showing you in this verse, somebody just thought, I'm going to repeat this three times, or someone was supposed to repeat this three times and messed it up, or someone fell asleep or whatever, or stepped up and went to the bathroom and then came back and did that. The problem is the scrolls that ended up getting uh, sort of becoming the, the mainline scrolls, the ones that everybody held on to, the papyri that everyone held on to, are the ones that eventually get the verses numbered. So because those are the ones that get the verses numbered, by the time we get to the, the originals and we look back as far as we possibly can and we realize none of the originals had this and the new ones do, we had to remove the verses to get as close to the original autographs. And what that does is makes it look like we're trying to hide something or, or pull something out of Scripture. I've had so many discussions with people where at least I thought I was having a discussion. I think they think we're having an argument uh, because they're mad at me. But with this passage, for example, who are saying, no, they are removing hell from the Bible. They don't want hell to be in the Bible, so they're, someone removed it. You know, the church is going woke or whatever words you want to hear. Like, there's so many different words that get thrown around today. The truth is we have, we have manuscripts that are very, very, very old from multiple different places on the earth. It is more likely that if we have one from Egypt, Greece, Rome, Jerusalem, and somewhere else, and all six of those line up, but the one that came out of X, Y, or Z does not line up, and it's 400 years later, it is more likely that the later one is the one that has the mistake rather than the earlier ones from all over the place that match up. Right, and this this brings us to this idea of textual families, right? We have like... The, the Byzantine family, the Egyptian family, mm-hmm. or Alexandrian family, the Vaticanus family. And basically what that is is to say, okay, as these, these right, remember, like, Paul was writing a letter. Like, he just mm-hmm. wrote a letter to a church, and he probably meant it to be a circular letter often, like going to multiple mm-hmm. churches, but he didn't, like, put it in a glass case and seal it for humidity and then send it around. Like, people, no. people were handling this. They were opening it. They were referencing it over mm-hmm. and over again. They were reading through it and taking it to other places and throwing it on the back of a a horse or mule or something. So they're taking all these out. So anyway, as that one letter gets spread out, copied and taken to all these places, then you start seeing like, oh, wait, all the ones in this rough geographic area all have the same mistake on it. Well, probably because a, a mistake was made. Yes. And then that mistake was copied. And then that was copied and copied and copied. And so you can you can start to discount, you can realize that some of those are actual mistakes because all the other geographic ones don't have that, but this whole branch does. And mm-hmm. so so where that gets tricky is there are some translations that will give authority, they say, or preference to certain 
um, families. So, for example, King James Version gives authority to the Byzantine text family. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why I think KJV isn't the best option because it gives authority to one of the families that I don't think is necessarily the best family to give it to, the best text family. Correct. So that would be... If and you, that was a horribly controversial statement. That, that, His that, name is Alex. You yes. Can, you can write a letter here, 2525. Yes. That, uh, no, but I mean, that's that's true because a lot of people who are KJV only, who, who believe that the King James Version is the best version, that is part of the reason why. Yes. It, it, there are other arguments. There are other things out there. I'm aware of those as well. But one of the arguments is this came from the Byzantine family, and the Byzantine family is the best family. I don't agree with that point. Therefore, I'm not going to give priority to the KJV. King James text. Correct. And without getting into all the detail here, the reason why the Byzantine family or the Byzantine family is not the best family is when you compare it to the dozen other schools, the dozen other schools all line up, but the Byzantine or the Byzantine doesn't necessarily. And if you start to look at just history itself, you've got popes arguing with each other, you've got schisms in the church, you've got major issues, and there's reasons for most of these things to happen that if we just step back logically and go, what is going on? And and in fairness to the 1611, for example, that's the, the earliest KJV we have. That was the first you know translation from, um, from the Greek and Hebrew, using also the Latin Vulgate, by the way, as a mm-hmm. guide, which all three of those have some issues because you're talking about the Byzantine Greek text, the Byzantine Hebrew text, and the Latin Vulgate, yep. all leaning into what in, in 1611 becomes the KJV. At the time... That would have been the best of the best translations. They would have never known 400 years later what we know now. And I've heard KJV defenders say, well, that's because Satan brought all these old texts back for us. And I go, okay, that's a ridiculous answer compared to there's 10 or 12 other schools that all line up and and the Byzantine doesn't. Everything we're finding bolsters the case. And, yeah, that was great for them. And it's, you know, because sometimes you'll hear the argument, well, if it was great for believers for the past 400 years, why isn't it great for us today? We we have better texts. But, again, none of this, not, nothing that we've ever found later has challenged our theology. Right. We've never been like, wow, I, I didn't know that Jesus actually didn't say those things or that, you know, did you know Jesus Jesus actually had a wife? Like, okay, no, that that text is, like, way out, like, that's clearly a copy of the one that says that Jesus was married. Yeah, it shows up 300 AD and has no bearing on anything. And right. it just shows up in the middle of the desert in Egypt where we know there's some really weird cults happening right. out there. So so it's like, ah, we probably won't hold on to that one. Yeah. But the rest of them, let's keep doing it. Right, this. it's not like we found that in Mark. Like we found Correct. like a, a text in Mark that Correct. said, oh, and Jesus and his wife went in and did this. And we're like, oh, scratch that part out. Or, oh, can you believe we found this? This is some new finding. Right. It's like, oh, okay, that was something completely different. We don't need to worry about that. Right. There is no collusion. There's no secret society with pastors all hiding saying we need to figure out how to store all this away. That's not happening. If you want to talk about this more, we would love to do that. Let's move to translation though, because yes. I think this is really important for us to, and, and I think the theme that we want to get here and I'll, so I'll, I'll drop the, you know, I'll lay my cards on the table. Now you can trust modern translations is, is what I, that's what I want you to hear from this podcast. Whether we're talking about textual criticism, which we just brought up, the, the fact that I know a lot about textual criticism compared to what I did when I started seminary, I'm more in love with the Bible and I trust it more than I did when I, when I started learning this stuff. Secondarily, translations. We can trust modern translations for a number of different reasons, but let's open up this can of worms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, translation is hard. It just like, is. Textual criticism begets translation. And yes. translation is just hard because here's why. Uh, 
listen to this whole statement and then let me explain it. The Bible means what it means, not necessarily what it says. And what I'm trying to communicate in that idea is that God is trying to uh, communicate something to people. And so he communicates that with his words. Now, these are his words. We're not, I'm not going the argument that like, oh, the Bible only contains God's words. No, the Bible is God's words. Mm-hmm. But for that communication to happen, it has to be understood by the people God's communicating to. So he used human language, mm-hmm. right? So God used human language to present the ideas or thoughts that he had. Now, that human language comes through human authors who are carried along by the Spirit, mm-hmm. and it is influenced by the time of writing and the culture of writing. And so to understand a lot of these things, you know, it's similar with Jesus. Jesus himself, the revelation of God, was influenced by his time and culture. Yes. Or his communication was, you know, of course, I'm not saying Jesus was like influenced on no, but, yeah, he you would, get what but he used mustard seed right. in a land where mustard trees existed. Right. If he was doing that here, it might be, it wouldn't be a soybean, but it might be a poppy seed or it might be, you know, it yeah. would be something else. It'd be something very small that leads to something very large. So the idea is we have to understand the meaning, yes. not just understand the words. And so when so translation gets really hard because we're trying to translate a meaning not just individual words and i actually think some of the the translations i'm not a big fan of the nasb and the reason why is that the nasb doesn't make as many translation decisions it tries to leave the original wording together as much as it can but for the modern reader who doesn't understand greek and greek culture or hebrew and hebrew culture it's really hard to make a determination you know, what's what, and, and I think in an illustration that I heard that helps, helps me understand this is when, when the gospel was brought to, I think, I think the story goes like Papua New Guinea and they're like, uh, you know, Jesus is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. These people have never seen sheep. Mm-hmm. So what do you, what do you say to them? Do you say, if you, tra- if you're translating the Bible for them, do you say, I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep and all the people read it and they're like, I have no idea what that means. Or do you say, well, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep and the sheep. And then you give a description and an illustration of what a sheep is and you try to, you know, but do you do that in the text? Well, now you're adding words to the scripture. Right. So you don't want to add words to scripture. Well, do you translate it? What, what kind of animals do they have? I think they have pigs a lot in, in New Guinea and that, that area. They have a lot of like wild pigs. So do you say, I'm the good pig herder and I lay down my life for my pigs. Like that's that's kind of understandable because uh, they can uh, they know what pigs are, but pigs are a little different than sheep. And maybe the way that a pig herder, inter- you know, like, so that's just where translation just gets mm-hmm. super 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 hard. And I am all for more of the translations that are pushing more for the meaning, not quite to the level of like the message. And the message I think doesn't even claim to be a translation. No, it's a paraphrase. It's a paraphrase, but. This is why I love the NIV. It's why I love, love the NIV update. And where I hear this a lot, if I, if I can just keep going, I'm kind of running the, You're great, man. the show here. Um, I, I, where this gets brought up a lot is when the King, or, uh, NIV switched from 1984 to 2011, they added uh, some language that is, I'm trying to think of the right word. The word that was used at the time was gender inclusive. But even in the last 10 years, gender inclusive means something different today than it does then. So, and where this came up is in a lot of Paul's writings, when Paul addresses the church, he said he used the word brothers, Mm -hmm. right? And in the Greek text, it's just brothers. I want to say Andres, but that's father, right? What is brother again? 
I don't know. Look it up. Adelphois is that Adelphois? I think there it is. is. What it yeah. Is. Yep. Adelphois. He he uses the word Adelphois, which the word, the the gloss of the term is brothers. But the definition is in Paul's time, he would have addressed a mixed gender crowd as brothers. That was what you did if it meant everyone. But today, if I got up in church and I said, "Listen, brothers," then the people in the audience might might think I'm only talking to the men, mm-hmm. especially the more modern audi- audiences. So how do you translate that idea? Do you translate the word? Because the word says brothers. That's what I see. I see Adelphoi. Uh, I'm going to write brothers. But then the modern reader reads that and says, oh, he's talking to the men in the church, for better or for worse. Like maybe they don't even think there's like anything sinister. They're like, oh, this just happens to be, you know, because there are times where Paul says, you know, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men, I write to you young mm-hmm. men. Anyway. But that's not what Paul meant. Paul meant everyone. So can we translate it brothers and sisters? I would say yes, because he meant brothers and sisters. But this is where translation gets tricky because, okay, are we changing the Bible now? Are we adding gender-inclusive language? And I know not everybody agrees with me, but that's that's why, like, translation is hard because we have to get at the meaning, and sometimes the meaning is harder than that. Like, uh, one I bring up a lot is in Job— you have uh, Satan and God interacting with one another, and God says something great about Job, and, and Satan's like, skin for skin. Mm-hmm. You're like, all right, what does that mean? Like, we don't even know. That's some Hebrew idiom. You know, Job was probably written super, super early. Uh, I don't know. So what do we translate? Well, we just translate skin for skin. We don't know what that means. But there are other instances. The Kind of the famous one in Chronicles is, is it Chronicles where the the pee against the wall is that in chronicles yeah, mm-hmm. yeah there's a, a phrase where like the the leader is supposed to gather all the people that pee against the wall yep. and that was a idiom for men because men can stand and pee and there's a hilarious youtube video on this yep. so, but yep. but beside that that's just an interest where interesting thing where we're just going to translate that men because when we read pee against, the people who pee against the wall we're kind of like that's not an idiom we use that doesn't really mean anything to right. us it's just men it's just looking right. for the men there Right, and some idioms have made their way into our language. So apple of, of my eye, yeah. for example, is, is an idiom that moved from the Bible directly into this. There's a number of these that have existed. The problem is the idioms that have not moved into English don't translate well. So then the question that you're left with as a translator is you're looking at the thing saying, I know what this means because I know the language. I understand Greek or I understand Hebrew in a way that none of my readers who are going to read this translation understand is it better for me to then take what I know the author meant? So, for example, Adelphoi, that means brothers, but he's clearly writing here to the whole church, right? Um, I'm just, I was slipping through to find one. Uh, Philippians 1.12 is a great one. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. We already have earlier in Philippians 1, he's talking to the entire church. At the end of the book, it mentions that there are two women who are fighting within the church who he would like to uh, separate and figure out a way to bury their beef. That's that's the word Paul uses. He doesn't use that. <laughs> but it's clear that he's writing here to both men and women. He's not writing a letter only to the men. He's writing to the men and the women. So therefore, Adelphoi would be better translated brothers and sisters, which is what the NIV does, which is what some translations do, but others don't. And those translations are making a decision on what did the author mean and how do I make it mean that? So, for example, if I've, I've used this many times, but 
uh, yo quiero tu in Spanish means I want you. If you really translated it into English, it means that, which we have always translated it, I love you, because that's what it means. It means I love you, not I want you. But you can understand how those two lines can sometimes get blurred, right? If you're mm-hmm. talking to a spouse, uh, you, there's a there's an element there that, that there's a passion behind it that you're sort of saying, this is how I feel about you. Uh, if you say it to a taco, you're also saying the same <laughs> thing, right? I, I yeah. really want this taco. I love you, taco, right? I, yo quiero Taco Bell. Like, I really want to love this Taco Bell uh, and have it love me back, which isn't going to happen. Yeah. But regardless, the, the point is, you know what the person's meaning, and then you therefore make the adjustment in your mind and do that. If you don't know the ancient culture, you don't know the ancient language, you're not at the same level. And so a translator has to make the decision, what am I going to do here? And that's part of where the translations get some people bent out of shape. Right. And and the thing is, we have to trust the translator because, like you're saying, they know the text so much better than us. And in one instance where, you know, the brothers and sisters thing, we kind of, okay, we could read that and understand. Yeah, he's probably talking about everyone. But there's there's a, a construction in Greek called the genitive. And basically, it's just two words relating to each other. Well, the genitive can have multiple meanings and some of them are different and nuanced enough that we we need someone to tell us what it means so so the simple genitive is like the verse the word of so for example if i said uh this phone of mine right that genitive of mine is a genitive of possession i own this phone and that means something about what rights and privileges I have about, I'm holding my phone right now for those of you who aren't in the room, which is everybody but Chris. Uh, But if I say uh, this wife of mine, I don't own her. And in that type of relationship that I have with my wife is different than the relationship that I have with my phone or, you know, this head of mine or this hand of mine or any of these, uh, this, uh, you know, I had this thought of mine that I was thinking through. Like, mm-hmm. oh, do I own the thought? No, like, it, it, so when you use the genitive, it can mean so many different nuanced things. And in Greek, I think there's like 20, something, I don't know. Yeah. And then there's something called objective and subjective. We're getting kind of into the nerdy stuff here. But objective and subjective can just mean that genitive can kind of mean different opposite things depending on which way you're taking it. And the, the, the most famous one is in, in Galatians where it talks about the faithfulness of Christ. Well, is the faithfulness of Christ that we have faithfulness in Christ, like it's our faith? You know, through the faithfulness of Christ, we have eternal life. I, that's a paraphrase of somewhere in Galatians. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. You know, so that through the faithfulness of Christ, is that my faith in Christ or is it Christ's faith in that he possessed the faithfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, is it through faith of Christ? So is that my faith in Christ or is it Christ's faith in his work on the cross? And that those constructions happen frequently and it's really hard to just, in, in, if you can just read over in English and you completely miss it. But when we really start studying these, we have to make a decision. Which one is it? And I am much more in the sense of let's trust the Bible scholars who are studying this way more than I am to make those decisions for me. And then if, I, if I'm if i interested in something deeper, I can read the commentary, read the discussion around a particular verse or instance or use of the genitive, for example. Uh, but just in my in my daily reading, somebody should be making those decisions for me because I can't make them. Right. I'm, I'm not as equipped as they are. So that's, that's kind of why translation is so hard, but why it's so important. So if you just fell asleep listening to that, uh, <laughs> the, the rest... <clears throat> the rest of the discussion on textual criticism may not excite you at all, and you might just think, 
I don't ever need to get into any of this. I'm just going to trust the translation that I have right in front of me, which I would say, Great. go, go yes. for it. That's exactly what we're saying. We are telling you that as, as nerdy guys who finished our master's degrees and did all of this stuff and had to fight through a bunch of tests and quizzes and everything else to prove that we had enough of a handle of the language of Hebrew and Greek to be able to properly understand it and then translate it to some extent before you, we are knee-deep in this, and we trust the Bible more today than we did when we started. Yeah. So you can do the same. Yep, and this is, this is part of what we do when we study a sermon. We, we dig through all this, uh, but yeah, we want to point out when you read your Bible, just about all the modern translations, yep. they're making these decisions. They're doing a great job. Ah, some nuances here and there between them, but we can trust them. We can trust that we have God's word and what he was trying to communicate to us can be found in these words. That is the closest thing to true that we've ever been able to say. And, and the truth is we have a lot of old scrolls that we didn't have 70 years ago or 80, yeah. or 80 years ago. Kid, we, kid threw a rock in the cave and all of a sudden. Yeah, which didn't affect the New Testament, but it affects yeah. the Old Testament and it affects the intertestamental period a ton for us. So with that said, let me we're going to open up one little tiny can of worms here to show you mm-hmm. how important this matters. We're going to cut this really short and we're going to make it kind of an intro because the idea of Gehenna or hell or Hades is going to uh, become a major con- conversation later on in the podcast because the books of the Bible are going to use this a number of times. So I'm going to open up the can of worms. Alex, you asked me as many questions as you want to ask me, but we're going to, you know, we're mm-hmm. going to kind of click this in here. And the reason why we're bringing this up right here is back to that Mark 9. Notice how many different issues in Mark 9, 42 through 48 there are. Uh, this is not like a little tiny passage that's got nothing else going on. And we aren't even talking about the saltiness, because we briefly brought that up in the other podcast we yeah. did. So just to tell you, like, there's so much going on. So when we're practicing and working on a sermon, we are doing our best to bring you exactly what the Bible says, but also we're sometimes taking some of these details and making it, we're working through it, making sure we have a good handle of it, and then we're ready to come and proclaim the Word of God to you. But there are things that are little side trails that we would never touch on, not because they're not important, uh, they are, but they're not of utmost importance. And so that's where we leave it for the podcast. So for example, the reason why we bring this all up is if you go back to verse 43, it says that you will enter life crippled, then with two hands to go to hell, an unquenchable fire. Now, again, if you're reading this and you're going back to what we've already discussed as far as textual criticism and everything else goes, that unquenchable fire discussion, you can see how they might take that unquenchable fire and then make it say where the Right, where the worm does not die and the, and the fire is unquenchable and repeat it three times just to really make the point. But the word that they translated here is hell. The problem is that's not the word in Greek. So there's a translation decision being made here. There's a textual criticism decision being made here, and they've moved from the word that says something else to the word hell, right? That's correct. Okay, so what word did they use, Alex? They used the word Gehenna. Okay, so let me let me open up. Here we go. Here's Gehenna. Gehenna, and if you go to Israel, you're going to see all these things. So there's my little plug. You, you need to go with us at some point because there's there's things that we'll see and do. We won't hit all of these topics there, but there's, there's so much that you start to see and go, holy cow. So the Valley of Hinnom, just outside of Jerusalem, it was a place in the Old Testament where there was a ton of worship of other gods. There are Asherah poles, there are statues to Molech and to Baal all over the place. And one of the things that happened in this valley 
is all of these centers of worship existed and they had fires lit all the time where you could do your sacrifices to these other gods. Some even considered uh, this space to be the exact realm where those gods lived and the only way to meet them was to go down there, offer a sacrifice, and then they believed, and I'm not saying this is true, but they believed that some type of portal or something else would open up into the underworld that would allow you to commune with this other being. Yeah. That's the Old Testament. You can understand then why in the intertestamental period, this is between the Old and the New Testaments, the beginning of what we call the Second Temple period, that idea of a place of fire dedicated to other gods and opening a portal to the underworld would begin to be used in a way that starts to parallel this concept that we would call hell. The weird thing is, is some of the things that were being discussed in the intertestamental period is that this space called Gehenna, this space where it was sort of this, this connection to what we would call hell today, was that there was a fire burning that would purify you and allow you to move into the underworld. That's what the ancient Greeks believed, the ancient Babylonians, the ancient Canaanites. They believed that you, must, you needed to be purified by fire to be able to go in to the underworld. So this portal, this whole idea was sort of like a purification rite to let you enter death well. Well, if you're entering death well and you're a, a believer in Christ or a believer in God who doesn't necessarily believe that those gods exist or they exist in a different way than maybe the, the world thought of them, then this space, these fires burning, becomes a really good place for you to say, no, the fire that you need is the refining, the purifying fire of God. And so therefore, everything that's happening down there is idolatrous and evil. And because it's evil, that's not the place you want to go. And there begins to be this parallel between the word Gehenna and the word that we eventually start using as hell. But what's odd is even in the intertestamental period, it's got more of a uh, purification idea rather than penal, meaning there's no punishment attached to it. It's, it's more to make you righteous so you can enter the underworld rather than fixes you to go to the underworld. Mm -hmm. Okay, now when we move to the New Testament, uh, there's a number of different words that get used in the New Testament. And I'm, I'm going to just drop them all here, but I'm gonna, we're going to preview them later and talk about them later. But words like Hades, words like Gehenna, even the word hell does exist. Uh, yeah. All of these words start getting used in the Sheol. New Testament. Sheol is all, all this gets pulled out. And the idea is, again, this moving to the underworld idea. What starts to happen because of all of those old stories of Gehenna and this valley of the fires burning and, and the portals opening to the other gods and all this sort of weirdness, the word starts to get attached with eternal punishment because of those who right. took practice of that eternal punishment deserve what they're going to get. Mm -hmm. And so why wouldn't you then be thrown into a fiery furnace? That word eventually, because of the book of Revelation, where it talks about once and for all, the devil and his minions being tossed into what we call the abyss, where they uh, fire burns and moth will not destroy, right? Uh, let me read it. Um, <clears throat> it's in Revelation chapter 20. And the devil who had deceived him, or the, sorry, the devil, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what we think of with hell. Mm -hmm. Like that's the phrase of hell. So now you can imagine being a translator knowing that Gehenna here is talking about this thing, but really what they're aiming toward is this final destination that everyone's going to go to, knowing full well that in the Old Testament when people were doing this, they were thinking of their final destination, 
but in a different way than maybe we think of the final destination. And they're going, what do I do? Do I put Gehenna in here? Which is a word that nobody's going to understand right. what, what it means. Mean? Yeah. Right? They're, they don't know the Valley of Hinnom. Like I just told you, you have to go to Israel to really see it and experience it. And by the way, none of those fires are still existing. None of those, you know, the idols don't exist. None of that happens anymore. And you go, okay. And by the way, it's not even really a valley. It's been filled up with so much junk at this yeah. point. It's not even really a valley at this point. So you look at it and you go, okay, what do I do with this as a translation? The word Gehenna clearly means hell. At least that's the way Jesus is sort of describing it here. So do I just make the leap and call it hell, even though that's not the word yeah. that's being used? He means hell as what we would understand as hell. Correct. And and I think it's important just to remind everyone that, like, as as Chris is telling these stories, you're like, man, how did these people, like, think that that was the gate to the underworld and all that kind of stuff? Like, that's, that's totally crazy. I mean, we do the same thing. We, we have myths and stories, and some of them are kind of like, oh, yeah, we know that's not true, but it's just a story. But the, the one that I think of is like, you know, Sylvester and Tweety, he's, he's chasing him around. He dies because he gets blown up by TNT, and what does he immediately do? He gets a halo and wings, and he floats up to heaven. Mm-hmm. That's not how heaven works, guys. Right. You know, but all of us are like, oh, yeah, you know, you go to a funeral, and like, oh, you know, heaven got another angel today. Like, oh, I, I understand what you're trying to say, mm-hmm. but... Us uh, humans and angels are completely different beings. So in the same way, we we get things wrong about the afterlife. Yes. They just get in; they're pervasive in our culture. And so in the same way, back in Jesus's day, those wrong things, Jesus uses the knowledge of those things to make points. So he's not at all saying when he uses Gehenna, he's not saying, "Hey, I endorse all of these crazy beliefs about this place." What he's simply doing is communicating in a way that they would understand what hell is because he uses the word Gehenna. But for us, it doesn't mean anything to us. So we should translate that as hell. There are other instances where we should translate it as a different word. And sometimes you'll see in the Old Testament, Sheol, I think mm-hmm. this is a good example, where like, ah, it doesn't really mean right. hell, but that's where the, the you know, often the King James would, would call that hell. And we're like, ah, that's... It's just not the best understanding for today. Correct. So we use Sheol because we can't translate it because there is no modern-day understanding equivalent of Sheol. So all that to say, you know, I'm sure we'll dig into all these different pieces later, but it's tricky. It's hard. Uh, we have some good people who are really working on this to help us understand it better, but we can trust the translations that we have mm-hmm. because we got we have those people working on it for us. Exactly. So hopefully that makes sense. And hopefully at the end of the day, you're listening to this and going, man, that that is way more complicated than I thought it was, which is what we're aiming for. And secondarily, you can trust. There you go.